Hey everyone, this is Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Untold Stories. This is a show where we dive deep into the lives and personal histories of some of crypto's most influential leaders and find out how the crypto movement truly came to be. Let's dive in. This podcast is presented by BlockWorks Group, the only blockchain event and media production company I trust. For exclusive content and events that provide insight into the crypto and blockchain space, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. I promise you won't be disappointed. My next guest today, we're in for a real treat. Because whenever you listen to other podcasts, speeches, or other shows, you always hear theoretically about what happened during certain hyperinflation days or during crisis of, of government, of state, and issues when our governments don't act in the best way possible. We're very fortunate to have Mr. Simon Dix today. I consider him a very good friend of mine. He's the chairman of Ecstatus Capital. Welcome, Simon. Thank you for coming to the show. Thanks, Charlie. Uh, great to be on your show, and I'm looking forward to this uh, this chat with you. Simon, most most people in 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 the world um, that especially we talk to and we interact with, and I don't like to use the term like first world country, but you know, in the West, you know, if we have to use that term, don't really interact with the state until it's time until let's just say pay taxes. So the first time you really interact with the state is get your driver's license. And then eventually when you get into the workforce to pay taxes, Yep. it seems like where you grew up in Zimbabwe, you've probably had to interact with the state, um, whether it be a positive or negative way much early on in your life. Um, do you remember that first interaction or some, some first interactions you've had with the government of was it Rhodesia at the time? Yeah, it was. I was actually born in Rhodesia, which is uh, now Zimbabwe. Um, the first 11 years of my life was was interesting. There was a, a, a sort of a, a countrywide guerrilla war going on. Uh, lots of lives were lost. But basically, that's when the minority government um, was overtaken by the majority, which led to independence in 1980. Um, so we, I've been through you know, a country where we've changed government. We've had... Uh, Interesting political leaders there, which, you know, we had a dictator in power for 38 years. He's now left, Robert Mugabe. Um, and there's been a lot of changes through the, for the country. It's affected people. It's, you know, it's led to hyperinflation, um, collapse of the currency. And, and a lot of those similarities which I've been through are glaringly in our face today and are quite concerning. Um, Were you aware of any of these things as a, as a 10-year-old living in, in Rhodesia, Zimbabwe? Well, not really. I mean, we only probably until a, f- a few years ago, I was pretty oblivious to how the whole the whole system actually worked. Um, fortunately, I got involved with IT solutions in, in the banking space, and I had my eyes wide open in terms of how money is created, how we are controlled by governments, and how we basically have our wealth and our freedom ripped away from us. Um, so, you know, my time... In Zimbabwe, growing up in Zimbabwe and having to move countries to South Africa, uh, coupled with the fact that I've had this experience in the banking space, have all led me to where I am today. Why did you have to leave at a young age to South Africa? Well, I basically went through schooling in Zimbabwe. Um, the first 11 years, like I said, was a war. I, I came from a very conservative family and the vision was to to finish my schooling and, and then maybe go on to university or, or college, as you would call it. 
um, and study business. That really what what the vision was. Um, it didn't really turn out as planned. Um, you know, everything does it ever? No, it doesn't. Everything happens for a reason. Um, but in hindsight, it all worked out pretty well. So you know, finished my schooling. Um, had had a had a great experience at school in Zimbabwe. It was a wonderful place as a as a young guy to grow up. Um, we had lots of freedoms. We, you know, we could walk around. Yes, after the after independence, um, there were there were freedoms, and I think the country was in a good space for a while. Um, but like any country, what happens is governments tend to lose control. They they embark on on different programs, um, and and ultimately in Zimbabwe's case, they printed too much money, um, and they lost their way through through hyperinflation and collapse of the currency, which which happened several years later. Well, how did that play out? So here you are, it's it's Zimbabwe, it's a they changed the name of the country, it's um majority rule government now, the people are happy. Um you have a, a new leader, um and everything seems should go well. I mean, this is a, a familiar story. You see these you see it happens all the time. Um what happened? Well, I mean, 1980 independence, um, we had a new government uh, under Robert Mugabe, which came into power. Um, and for the first few years, Zimbabwe was on a, on a strong trajectory. It was, uh, we'd had a low, uh, one of the strongest. We, we were the breadbasket of Africa. Um, the economy had become very self-sufficient. And this is all hard to believe. Um, having had sanctions on the country for many years, there was a lot of local industry, um, a lot of manufacturing locally. And uh, that really did boost the local economy. Um, but in time, that all changed, um, and you know, I think after my leaving school, I, I, I embarked on a very different journey for a number of reasons, and we can go into that. But um, it took it took took a very different route in my life. I, I didn't go to the traditional university and and on a, on a path that was sort of mapped out for me in life. What did you What did you end up doing as your first as your first career? Well, as your first my job? First you're walking around on the streets? Well, I, it goes back probably to when I was a kid, actually. I was, um, you know, like I said, I came from a, a very conservative family and uh, pocket money was one thing that uh, my father was a little bit tight with. So I think my first business venture started when I was about 12 years old, where I, I started uh, my entrepreneurial idea of selling golf nets to the local members at the, at the local country club. Um, and uh, my father was my business partner in this little venture and uh, earned some pocket money and then the bug had bitten, and and after that, I decided. Well, I, I really I had to be an entrepreneur, and I didn't know it at the time. Um, and then in my final year of school, I, I was unfortunate. I was involved in quite a quite a serious car accident, which set me back a little bit. And I had thought at that time that um, I was going to just go and do a BCom or, or a Bachelor of um, Business Science, something like that. Um, and I and and I wasn't going to possibly make the grade to to get into university. Um, but like I said, everything happens for a reason. And like any 18-year-old, you want to conquer the world. So I, I left Zimbabwe and I and I hitchhiked to lift to South Africa where I realized very quickly that I didn't have any money and I needed to find a job. So what do you do when you need a job? You, you phone up the sales manager of the most successful office automation company in the country and you demand a meeting with them. And I did this and uh, I remember very clearly, 18 years old, walking into his office and um, he looked at me and I had this long suit on, which was a bit too big for me. And uh, he said, well, how can I help you? And I said, well, I'm, I'm looking for a job in sales. And um, 
at that point, he said to me, well, what experience have you got? So I said, well, I mean, I've got no experience and you obviously need to give me some experience so I can gain experience. So he packed out laughing and uh, said to me, well, I'll tell you what, sell me this pen. So I thought about it for a second or two. And then I said, well, how much are you prepared to pay for it? And he said, two rand. I said, right, it's yours. And from then on, he realized, well, this guy could probably sell, but he's a little bit wet behind the ears. So I tell you what, we'll offer him a, a job in the technical side of the business. So um, the next day I came to work and I was a, a technician wearing overalls and um, I went and asked my boss for a pay increase, which as you can imagine, didn't go down to On the first day? a second day, second day at work. So I did leave it a little bit. And then, um, you know, he said, well, you're not worth anything to the company because you don't have any experience. So I said, well, you better send me on some training so I can gain some experience and uh, become an asset to the company. And that's what happened. I got trained and then shipped off to some remote part of the country um, for a year, uh, after which I went into sales, which I, which I thoroughly enjoyed. And um, I did, what I was selling? selling office automation, um, Xerox equivalent to Xerox type machines for the local company called Nashua. Um, and it was a great company. It was a great training ground. I learned a lot about sales, about rejection, about cold calling, about putting yourself out there. And all of these uh, jobs stood me in very good stead for, for what, which was down, uh, lay ahead in the future for me. So I did that for about a year um, and then decided I was going to go back to Zimbabwe and start that franchise in Zimbabwe. I was 20 years old at the time. Was South Africa going through sanctions at that point? Um, yes, it was. But um, South Africa was, again, was also, um, it, it, it was an, a strong economy co compared to where I'd come from. So I wanted to go back to what I knew. And at that stage, it was Zimbabwe. I read somewhere, so you just described that you sold equipment that um, that was the equivalent of Xerox. And I read somewhere that, you know, growing up in South Africa um, or growing up in, in the United States, <clears throat> excuse me, I apologize. Growing up in the United States, our products are made everywhere. Our TVs made in China, our chocolates from Germany, or everything's from everywhere. Um, but growing up in South Africa, I had read that everything was made in South Africa, it was wildly, because of the sanctions, they embarked on a program to basically produce everything internally. So your TV was actually South African, correct? Yeah, I mean, and in Zimbabwe, it was probably to an even high, a greater degree. Um, with, uh, with, um, with the sanctions in Zimbabwe, what happened is that all the local industries flourished. Um, the currency was, was basically pegged. Um, it had a very strong agricultural base, and um, it was the breadbasket. It had a, had a massive agricultural surplus, um, and, and, and the country did well. I mean, you look at the rest of the world today. You look at the U.S. today. I mean, everything's been exported to the rest of the world, and we know how that's turned out and, and where, where it's all going to end. And I think it's all going to end very, very badly. So that's one extreme, right? South Africa's extreme in those, in those days was that it, it produced everything. Yeah. It almost imported nothing. Um, did it export much? Did it export? Well, Zimbabwe exports a lot of tobacco. So they were the second okay. biggest tobacco exporter in the world. Um, and it also exported some minerals, gold, um, very strong uh, gold mining um, infrastructure at the time. Um, and, uh, and certain other agricultural products, maize was being exported. So the country was, was in a very strong uh, financial wicket at that stage. So now we live in a world, though, where we are people don't really make anything anymore. We're kind of exporting. That's what my grandfather would say. You know, you, 
you young whippersnappers don't produce anything. You know, get it your hands down and make something. And I say, well, I make I make a podcast. That's that's making something, right? But um, but we live in a world where we don't really we we all kind of trade with each other, and that's the business of today: trade with each other. You think we're we're better off doing that versus where countries were very independent themselves and could produce their you know their basic necessities for their populations? No, not at all. I mean, if you look at the economy globally today, I mean. Pretty much everything's been exported uh, across to the east. I mean, China's obviously manufacturing for the world um, and obviously holding so many um, U.S. Treasury notes. And um, obviously they're concerned. And you just have to look and see what they've done in Africa in the last few years. I mean, they've been acquiring gold mines and, 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 and stockpiling gold. And that pretty much tells you the lack of confidence in, in the dollar long term. So, you know, any country that's exported all its manufacturing have really got got to get that back to their natural their countries and 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 build their no, local industries and what happens after that well i think once you've once you you know the u.s is in a different position because they've got the privilege of the the u.s dollar at the moment so for most countries they need to build up local manufacturing so they can export and they can have a strong balance of payments the U.S., on the other hand, is in the very fortunate position that they've got the the U.S. dollar as the you know global reserve currency, and it's been sort of there since since World War II, uh, where virtually every currency was pegged to the dollar. Um, but more importantly, since the 60s, you've got the advent of the petrodollar. So, you know, these days, the fortunate position for the U.S. is they can print as many dollars as they want out of thin air. Um, and they can basically export those dollars through to the rest of the world who, who each country has to manage their balance of payments, balance their budgets and, uh, and, and, and build up their forex reserves for their imports. So today the U.S. is in a very fortunate position, but I see that changing in time. And, you know, I think we just have to look at, you know, the whole history involving money and, and what is money, which, you know, paints a very gloomy picture for, for where we are all today. And, and for the very, for those very reasons, the reasons why we're in, uh, in alternative assets. So you, you're a young kid and you, you're in Zimbabwe opening up the branch for the company that you'd worked for office automation. What did you do next? So I built this company. It was a family business in, in Zimbabwe. Um, we had it for a number of years. Uh, it was a great training ground. Um, and like I said, my father had been a very conservative man. He sold the business after a couple of years. Um, and that was probably the right decision. Um, I had a five-year restraint on me at the time, which I was a little bit bitter about and, and didn't really get anything from the sale of the business. So I really had to start again. And I had really, I take this as my PhD in life skills. I, I didn't have a a college degree under my belt. Um, but that was the greatest thing that ever happened to me, I suppose. Um, and at that time, I remember computers were just coming onto the scene. Um, I remember sitting and, and, and watching a video of, of, a, of a company in the US that were listing. They were going through their IPO and they were promoting document management. So I wasn't really interested in the IPO. I was more concerned about the concept of information management at a time when computers were just coming out. So um, the whole concept there was I didn't want to sell PCs. I didn't want to sell servers or networks. I really wanted to focus on a corporate's most valuable asset being its information. And so I started a business with a colleague of mine. Um, we didn't have a lot of money. We were two young guys, with big ideas. We were ready to conquer the world. But our vision at that stage was to provide information management solutions to corporates. We believe that the most important thing was not the piece of paper, but the information that lay on that piece of paper. 
so what we did is we we found ourselves a big brother we um we started a, a business partnership with a big company in the u.s that you're familiar with sure. called uh, ncr national cash register um and it uh, at the time, they were they were the leading company in terms of retail and banking. Uh, they were into ATMs and check processing, and they were sort of our big brother in, in terms of getting this business started. Um, we would provide the software solution for their clients, and they would provide the servers and the networks and the databases. So it seemed like a pretty good idea in, in the beginning. Um, and uh, that went pretty well for a while. Um, we all did okay until the time came when NCR decided that they were going to go at it alone. Um, at that point, we uh, <laughs> we were a little bit bitter about it, but we we licked our wounds and and carried on. Um, and we were building up quite a nice little business at this stage. Um, one thing I, I wasn't too fond of was the fact that uh, every year the annual software licensing, which was about 18% of the the capex of the software was payable to the software vendor. And um, I said to my business partner at the time, I said, you know, we need to we need to be the guys managing our own destiny and creating our own software. And we need to do things differently from what we had seen with the NCR and in the marketplace. Um, there was another company called Unisys who were very big in the marketplace and in, in, in the bank space. And our little information management solutions were, were going along nicely. And we decided to develop a solution that was everything that their systems weren't. In other words, they had to be hardware independent. We could we could drive any hardware device, any scanner, any any equipment like that, any any server, any PC. They had to be database independent. So you know, Oracle, SQL, whatever the case may be, we would use it. Um, and they had to be modular and easy to use. And that's what we did. We we you know we took on resources and um, we built our own software team and and over the period of about uh, two years, developed our own application for Africa. And then what happened is um, there was a startup bank in Zimbabwe at the time, and they were not happy with their, um, what they'd seen in the marketplace with the traditional check processing solution providers. And that they were happy with hyperinflation, but they weren't happy with their software. Well, the hyperinflation hadn't happened, happy, happened, didn't happen at that stage. It was much later that hyperinflation kicked in. So in the early days, they they wanted open, independent systems that were easy to use, well priced, um, and basically far far better and more modular than what was available on the market. So, you know, they turned to us and they said, well, what do you know about check processing? And uh, before we knew it, we were on a plane back to the US to find a product, a solution and learn about the business and implement that in Zimbabwe to complement our information management solutions. And that was how we sort of got into into the banking space and into payment solutions, which was great. So you so you, so you basically brought the the solution, the software solution to a bank um, that that ran their their whole backend essentially. Correct, correct. So in the early days, it was simply check processing, um, and we had very humble beginnings. Um, the concept being very simple, um, you know, our systems had to be easy to use, um, and we really now were sort of in a David and Goliath situation where we were taking on the big U.S. multinationals. So. The solutions evolved from initially basic information management and scanning solutions to check processing and into the payment solution space. Um, we had a few lucky breaks. We managed to get the Pan-African deal for Barclays, which was a great breakthrough for us. And then in time, our systems evolved. We, um, we put out the first check truncation solution in Africa, which meant that we could now settle check clearances almost instantaneously, which was the 
third of its kind in the world um and the first year this? Oh, this is back in about oh, uh, 2002 it was about 2002 Okay, so but why, so why does it still take three days for my check to clear here in the United States? Well, that's because the banks are sitting on your money, and the business case doesn't make sense for them. The, the technology is out there; um, they could clear your checks instantly. It's just that the banks are a bit of a fraud. I mean, how the banks run, how money is created, uh, the concept of money itself—it's all—it's all one big lie. And and we'll come into that Who's in a minute. Blame though—is it—is it the state itself or is it the banks? Well, the it's folks? both. I think you know ultimately. The banks and the government are in, in cahoots together. Um, the government uses the banking system as a means to control the population, and that's not going to go away. And we've seen more recently since 2008 in the financial crisis that you know no banker goes to jail and they just get a slap on the wrist and, and worst case scenario, a small fine. So that's not going to change, but a lot is going to change globally going forward. Um, so you're just going back to the business, you know, you know, we built the business up over over. 20 years. Um, I think today they're they're in about uh, 30 countries across Africa. It's the largest payment solutions provider in Africa. A company called Cybron. Um, but the business grew to a stage where I, you know, I'm an entrepreneur at heart. I'm not corporate, and I realized that I needed to to get out of this corporate environment and challenge other opportunities. Um, so back in about 2013, I, I sold the business to a listed company on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange. Um, we were their largest acquisition at the time, and I was also very concerned about, you know, the banks, the central banks, how they treat their populations, um, how they cheat us, um, and so, you know, I was very, very concerned right back then, you know, about, you know, what, what I learned about money, and um, I think, supposed to this day, that's really what's moved me into, into, you know, uh, cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin hedge funds and prior to that bitcoin mining so what did you what did you learn well i think you know generally the population has no idea what is money they think that those notes in a in your wallet is is, is money and in fact it's just currency um so we really need to sort of all educate ourselves on what is money and what is currency and, and really the difference between the two um, and that's exactly what happened in Zimbabwe. And, and so many people have become financial prisoners in Zimbabwe from not knowing the difference and not taking action. And I'll come on to that a little bit later. But, you know, one of the main reasons we're in this financial mess globally is that, um, you know, people think that paper, fiat, fiat currency is money. And, you know, money has to be certain things. It has to be it has to be a medium of exchange. It has to be a unit of account. It's got to be portable durable, um, divisible, it's got to be fungible. In, in other words, each unit has to be the same as the next. But most importantly, which most people don't understand and all they forget is that money needs to be a store of value over a long period of time. And I guarantee if you speak to wealth managers or your banker or even your accountant possibly, they won't understand the difference between currency and money. And, and that's what scares me. Um, well, they're just salesmen. Absolutely. 100% they're looking for their fees. Those annual Management fees, that's what they're after. Um, and I suppose because governments can print more and more money of it and dilute the currency supply, it's it's con constantly tra transferring wealth out of your pocket, out of your bank account to the governments and into the banking system. Um, and, and that's the reason why, you know, for thousands of years, for five, 10,000 years, gold, silver, now Bitcoin are the optimum form of money because of those properties. Um, it's an easier medium of exchange. 
you know, obviously gold, silver. Now, cryptos are a great store of value in a very, very small area. I mean, you can have all of your wealth sitting on a on a little treasure, um, you know, cold storage wallet or, or a ledger wallet. It's great. Um, and and you know, obviously Bitcoin has very similar properties. Um, you know, um, you know, globally it's pretty much the same price. Although in some countries there is a premium. It's all about supply and demand through the exchanges. Um, but it's really portable. You can. Um, it's the ultimate money in my mind, really. And Bitcoin in one country, generally speaking, in another will will buy you, you the similar amounts of, of goods and services. Um, sure, sure. That's. I mean, those are the most important properties that are needed. And it's one of the reasons that the dollar still has its global reserve cur- currency because you can go anywhere in the world and let's just say you want to purchase a car. Yep. If you hand the person dollars, you can, any country in the world, you hand the person dollars, they're not going to not take it. They're going to take, they're going to take it for the sale. Um, but if I'm in, you know, if I'm in Mexico and I'm selling a car and someone hands me Russian rubles, I'm probably not, I'm going to go say, go to the currency exchanger guy and, and convert it into dollars or pesos. Exactly. Exactly. And obviously, this is, you know, we've got inflation today. I mean, you know, the fact that Bitcoin is limited to 21 million, I mean, that's that's so powerful. We haven't even seen the benefits of that yet. And I think only once the institutional money starts coming into the space, will that really be realized. But, um, you know, the whole concept that, you know, things like, for example, the Federal Reserve. I mean, Federal Reserve is largely privatized by three major families. Yes, the other major banks have a very small stake in the Fed. It's never audited. But most people don't understand that. They think it's it's... It's controlled 100% by the government, and that's not the case. Um, you know, we've we've lost all idea what money's all about, and, and that goes back to you know when uh, when the Fed was created back in 1913. It's it's not money has not been a currency has not been a good store of value since then. It's it's depreciated. We've lost what 95, 96% of its purchasing power. Whereas if you look at Bitcoin on the on the other hand, in the last 10 years, it's by far the best performing asset out there and it's a it's a real store of value um so yeah i mean the history of money is is quite alarming and uh, people need to sort of wake up and, and understand you know where did money come from and what are the risks within the monetary system you know um can anything can anything really be money i mean you tell me you told me stories how you you travel once a year to to the auction to purchase um beautiful animals for your reserve you know you have giraffe and you have all these different animals um, in South Africa. Well, those have value. Um, can those be considered, can be giraffe be considered money? No, I don't think so because they, they're not very portable. Um, they're not a great, easy, <laughs> no, they're, not. <laughs> they're difficult to catch. You need, you need a helicopter, you need to dart them. So those are some of the characteristics which probably don't make it great money. Um, you know, they don't last forever. And a giraffe at some point dies. Yes, they will reproduce, hopefully, but... Those are the sort of characteristics that we do need in money today and sound money today. And, um, you know, as far as I'm concerned, money has to be a, a long-term store of value. And I don't know if you remember back, I mean, maybe you would have been too young, but I remember certainly, I'm a bit older than you, Charlie, but I remember when growing up, a little bit. <laughs> growing up as a kid, I remember that all the notes used to say on them, I promise to pay the bearer on demand. And essentially what you could do is, that evolved way back from the jewelers. Way back in the day, the jewelers who used to take people's gold and silver and give them a receipt for it, they became the bankers. And it evolved into that over, over hundreds of years. And what they soon realized is that they could rehypothecate those notes and overstate 
how much money there was was in the system, and that's what led to inflation. But going back to you know prior to 1971, I could take my my $10 bill into a bank, and it said on the note I promised to pay the bearer on demand, and I could collect collect $10 worth of coins. I mean, you know, that's obviously all gone now. Um, you know, the, the, the idea I can't that, do that today. you can't do that anywhere in the world. I mean, every currency in the world is, is now a fiat currency. In other words, it's dictated by confidence in the government. And only that, there's, there's absolutely nothing backing the currency whatsoever. So, I mean, you know, countries have all started out with sound money. And I mean, even more recently, even in countries like Zimbabwe, where they moved across to the US dollar, Sort of overnight, the, the government looted those coffers and 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 issued a, a something called a bond note. Well, that was just a, another fiat currency backed by absolutely nothing. Within a couple of months, hyperinflation and collapse of the currency. And I, I see that happening to all currencies going forward. Um, I don't think any any country in the world will will manage will manage to escape what's coming. It's 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 pretty hectic. What's what lies ahead of us down the road? Um, Most people don't understand what what really hyperinflation is or what happened? You know, they know that you can go to eBay and buy a trillion dollar Zimbabwe note. Yep. And that's, you know, it's all cool and fun and everything. But from your perspective, being on the ground, like give us a, explain to us what happened and give us a, um, like as if we could imagine it, you know, like what was the weather that day? I mean, what didn't happen over one day, but you kind of see my point. What was it like being in the midst you were in that country. You were working in that country, and you know the, the direct country south to it. Um, you were you were there. Most people weren't. What was what was that like? From from you know, I consider you a monetary theorist. Um, from that perspective, well, it all goes back to the government of the day. I mean, at the time, they needed power. Um, the country had gone through uh, a war, um, and the people who had been fighting for their freedom, for their independence. Now I was saying to the to the, the politicians of the time, to the, the Robert Mugabe regime, we need compensation for fighting in this war. We need monetary compensation. And and this has happened through 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 history in many instances, including the US. Um, but let's carry on with Zimbabwe. So so at the time, the war veterans who had fought in this war demanded a one-off payment of fifty thousand dollars and a pension for life. And 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 the government granted them that. But in order to 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 give them this um, compensation, the government clearly didn't have the money, so they had to print the money, which we know how that ended up. It ended up with hyperinflation. Um, you know, $50,000 at that time was uh, quite a lot of money. Um, within sort of a year or 18 months, you couldn't buy a, a Coca Cola for $50,000. That was more like a billion dollars. So when you overinflate the, the, the currency, what happens is you basically have a greater, far, far greater supply of currency chasing a fixed supply of goods and services, and that's always going to end badly. That's going to hyperinflate the currency and collapse it. And and, and every currency bar none in the world have, have gone to zero. And I mean, even if you look at the US, I mean, through history, there's been wars. You had the Revolutionary War, where in order to pay the, the soldiers, this is back in the US, they, the Continental War, exactly the same thing happened. They created a proxy, very much like they did in Zimbabwe. They've created a proxy to pay the troops, and that was called the greenback. That's where the term the greenback came from. And essentially what happened is it created hyperinflation and collapse of the currency. Again, that's where the saying, I don't give a continental comes from. It comes from the continental war in the US. So this has happened, this has happened time and time and time again, and it happened in 
Weimar Germany after after World War One, um, in order to pay the reparations for World War for World War One, they had to pay, and uh, they didn't have the money. So what did they do? They printed it and hyperinflated it, and again led to hyperinflation and collapse of the currency. So it never ever ends well. And I think you know closer to home right now is you want to look at what's happening with this quantitative easing and and you know if you go back and and you you see that you know the, the world currencies are being obliviated through inflation um printing all this money and and they're, they're simply just going to continue to lose their value and there's no way of avoiding what's coming down the road the only thing i can say is you've got to find a place to store your wealth keeping it in the banking system is is very very concerning for a number of reasons um you need to really understand firstly you know what is money <laughs> a lot of people don't understand the risks of the bank and the risks of the current monetary system um yeah what are those risks what is money and you've basically built banking software for 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 what a dozen uh, uh countries in africa what is it how are they running behind the scenes like what's okay well i think what is it like okay so just talking about firstly um you know what people may not understand about money firstly there's two things really that come to mind i mean the first thing is the money that you have in, in in your bank is not your money and secondly how how money is created so let's talk about money in the bank i have a lot of mates who often say well I've, i bank with bank xyz and i've got money offshore with this bank and that bank but the reality is that money is not their money it's the bank's money the minute you deposit money into the bank it goes onto the banking system, the bank's balance sheet as their asset. If you deposit 10 grand and tomorrow you try and draw $5,000 in cash out of that bank, they're going to try and stop you. They're going to try and think you're either a, an arms dealer or a terrorist or, or give some other funny reason why you can't draw out the money. And, and the reason being is all of their money is tied up in debt and paper loans. Um, and they're also trying to protect themselves from a run on the bank. So. Your money is actually the bank's money. You are simply a creditor of the bank. So that's the first part. Okay. What would happen, uh, before we get to the second part, what would happen in before the FDIC existed if you put your money in a bank, well, it's not your money, the bank's using it to loan out, and the bank failed? Well, you wouldn't get your money back, right? Well, going back, you were they were insured. Okay, that's all changed. You know, we we have insurance now of 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 only of two fifty thousand only. Prior to that, so banks had private insurance. Banks are insured their their deposit of up to two hundred fifty thousand. So if you've got ten million dollars in there, you're going to get two hundred fifty thousand dollars back if they collapse. It's great. So it's not great. Um, so <laughs> it's not it's not a great business model. Okay. And then the fact is, how is actually money is actually created from within the banking system? That's very concerning. I mean, it gets printed. It's printed out of thin air. It's, it's absolutely. So let's take Charlie Shrem. You deposit a round number. Let's work in round numbers here. You put a million bucks into bank XYZ. Okay. What they then do is they take that million dollars and they put it on their balance sheet as their asset. You are simply a creditor of the bank. And then they'll lend out that money on something called a fractional reserve lending system on a, on a 10 to 1 basis. So for your $10 million, they'll lend out uh, $1 million, they'll lend out $10 million in the form of, uh, you know, mortgage debt, credit card debt, and student loans, whatever the case may be. And they're going to charge interest on the full $10 million, which is actually your $1 million originally. And when that $10 million is paid off, guess what? They'll lend out $100 million and so on. 
And that's all against your initial $1 million of hard-earned cash. So that's really how money is created. And, and since then, we've seen in, in uh, 2008 with the credit default swaps, how, how banks are bundling all this these debts together and, and, and you know, they got out of hand and, and, and ended up in, in, in absolute almost calamity in 2008. And, and quite frankly, they should have let the whole system collapse. But since really, absolutely. Um, but since then, it's got a whole. Well, let's, let's talk. Let's talk alternate history for a second. Let's talk, you know, what would have happened if we let it all collapse? Where, you know, 10 years later, we're sitting here. What, what, what would the world have looked like? Well, I mean, <laughs> We would have had some pain. That's there's no question about that. And the world actually needs to go through a monetary collapse. Pain is good, though. Well, everyone tries to avoid avoid pain. That's the problem. <laughs> they want to kick the can down the road a little bit longer. But they, the world would have not gone back to a debt based society. But what have they done? They've actually made the situation so much worse than it was. Okay, I mean, since then, uh, derivatives have got out of control. Um, it's a major, major problem, and there's a lot of things pointing towards an econ economic collapse. Um, you know, um, if you just have to look at history, it's going to repeat itself, and it always does. Um, so there's a lot of lessons we can take back from what's happened in the past. Um, debasing the currency to pay for public works is never going to end well, um, and that's just going to keep repeating itself. So I don't think there's any question that we're headed for some sort of economic collapse in the future. Um, obviously, the death of the dollar and consequently a new monetary system so you know like i said sort of a currency normally lasts uh, every for 30 to 40 years and at that point there's a new monetary system okay today we have a fiat currency a debt-based society and that won't that, that won't re-emerge i believe in the future we'll either go back to uh, some sort of uh, currency backed solution uh, either with a basket of currencies backed by uh, precious metals to some extent or some sort of crypto-based solution. I, I'm not sure how the crypto one would pan out, and we'll talk about that further, because I think what will emerge is nations are going to bring out centralized cryptocurrencies, and most people are going to be none the wiser. But let's let's bank that for now. Um, the other thing that leads me to believe that there's a, an economic uh, collapse is inevitable is the fact that the petrodollar is doomed. You know, um, any country that has threatened to sell its oil and anything besides the dollar has been attacked. I mean, think about Iran. Iraq, Afghanistan, those are just to name a few. Um, also, since 2008, there's been massive amounts of quantitative easing. You know, it took 200 years to go from no dollars to $850 billion. And then they started this QE and, you know, started printing a trillion dollars a year. And uh, this, is a, this is not a good situation. Um, people are going to get worried. Um, it's going to lead to hyperinflation. And people are going to start looking for other areas to park their, their wealth. And those will include cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, and precious metals, I believe. Um, well, most people are gold bugs. You've been a big uh, fan yep. of silver. Why? Well, if you think back, um, silver was sort of demonetized in 1973, and, and really it's used in jewelry, but it's been demonetized globally. It's not deemed an asset. In fact, recently it has been recognized as, a, as, a, as, a, as an asset again. But if you look at silver... This is silver. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, no, no, I'm giving you a, a synopsis of both. Silver, on the other hand, let's go back to 1980. Silver was at $50 an ounce. It was practically only used for photography. Um, so fast forward, so 39 years ahead, it's now used. It's a, a, probably the most important strategic metal in the world. It's used in every cell phone, every laptop, every motor car. 
every television, microwave oven, you name it. Um, it's used in the medical space, it's used for solar. There's thousands and thousands of use cases for silver. And on top of that, there's very, very uh, small amounts of above ground reserves. So one would think that anything that is rare and is often used in every day, the price is gonna go through the roof given supply and demand. But silver's been pushed down by the likes of the big banks and especially JP Morgan. They've pushed the price of silver down and, and shorted it extensively from $50 an ounce down to about $14 an ounce today. But, and this basically sums up my concern with the banking system. Um, we lose faith in these banks because they tell a lie. JP Morgan has shorted the crap out of silver from $50 an ounce down to $14 an ounce. And guess who owns the most silver in the world today? 700 million ounces of silver. And that's the lie. Why? Why would well, they do know that, that it's, 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 it's a very, very undervalued asset. I mean, if you have a 99% sale at your local stores, people are going to be banging the doors down to get in there. But because silver's been shorted and might not look great on someone's balance sheet at the moment, people have generally stayed away from it as an investment. Most people look at the Dow Jones and think I'm making massive returns. That's where I'm going to put my money. But I can honestly tell you when, when the system does collapse, uh, precious metals and cryptocurrencies are going to fly. Money is going to find a new home in these safe haven assets, and they're going to go through the roof, especially once the institutional money comes into the space. So silver has been an interesting one for me, and um, I'm holding it, and I believe long term it's, it's only got one place to go. I mean, if you think about it logically, throughout history, the gold to silver ratio has been 15 to 1. Um, today, it's closer to 80 to 1. So it's a screaming buy. Um, and coming out of the ground at the moment, it's a byproduct of, of various different mining activities, gold and copper and zinc, and about nine ounces of silver are coming out of the ground for every one ounce of gold. So assuming that gold is fairly priced at the moment, silver should be at about $150 an ounce, but it's at 14 odd. We know that gold is undervalued. So, you know, the, a lot of people are suggesting that silver should be valued anywhere between $700 and $1,000 an ounce. So it's a, it's, a, it's a screaming buy right now. During, I agree with, with everything you're saying, you know, and you, we've had those conversations before and you've, um, I was, I've been bitten by the metals bug, as you say, the gold bug or the silver bug. And, um, it's definitely a great, um, and this is what people say. It's a great hedge against the world. But when I read, this is what, this is what I don't understand. When I read the history books and, and I say, okay, I want to look for examples of when owning gold or silver were good um, when the world has done something stupid or a, a large government has done something stupid or major war has broken out. Um, owning gold or silver was a good thing. Um, and I've kind of found the opposite, which is what I don't understand. You know, I look at two examples. I look at World War II um, and the price of gold went down a lot because you had an influx of gold on the market from uh, Jews that were fleeing Europe and then from Germany selling gold in order to pay for their or other almost all these countries selling their gold in order to pay for the wars. That's one example. Then I look at um, 2008. I look that as, as that as an example um, when the, the world, you know, had its most recent recession. And then I look at, an, you know, a smaller example as well. Um, the Russian Revolution. <clears throat> Um, a hundred or so, or so years ago, when when the the Bolsheviks took over and 
they took all the gold and they sold it in order to pay for their new country and the, the price of gold collapsed and all these people holding gold basically lost out. Um, what am I missing here? Why, why am I wrong? Okay, well, I mean, I think in the short term, there have been instances where that has happened. But if you think about it logically, if you go back, you know, sort of 100 years, barrel of oil back then cost you very similar to what a barrel of oil in terms of gold would be today. Whereas the currencies themselves have all gone. They've come and gone. The dollar, number of times, certainly the Zimbabwe dollar, most currencies have actually lost all of their value. So... For me, the question is, where do you preserve wealth? How do you preserve wealth? And it can't be in currencies because they are manipulated. They're printing it out of into oblivion. And I see precious metals as one of the hedge. I wouldn't say to you put all of your eggs in one basket. I really think that there's a massive, massive opportunity for Bitcoin in particular going forward. The fact is that there's only going to ever be 21 million. The fact of it being deflationary. These are very powerful factors and are going to make its price go way, way higher in the long term. But it depends how you look at it, Charlie. I mean, if you're looking at it from a speculator's perspective or as a store of value. Um, well, I'm looking at it. So I still like precious metals. Yeah. I, that's why I believe that silver has far more upside than gold. There's very, very um, big shortages globally. And it is being manipulated right now. On paper, it's being greatly manipulated. They're trading in one day or two days on the on, on the on the on the comics and what 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 they mine in a year so you know that is all going to come to an end where they fail to deliver if some so someone demands their their gold their physical gold and they can't deliver well the game's over and that's not too far ahead but when you keep your money in precious metals um you can't really use that money to work for you unless you Correct. borrow against you know and there are companies there are companies locally companies here in florida that you can borrow, you know, um, at seven, eight percent against against your your gold, um, and then use that money to buy real estate or do something where you think there's more upside. Is that something worth doing? Absolutely, it's all about hedging. So um, I know in Singapore there's an organisation that uh, you can buy precious metals. You then can leverage your precious metals and pull out fifty percent loan to value and put that into into any other investment what's class the real, that you see what's fit. the what's the like interest rate is it something doable or no it's it's no it's very very affordable it's four or five percent per annum really um and what people are doing is they they're buying silver then they're hedging against that and they're pulling their money out and putting it into cryptocurrencies and you know that sounds like a great time to be investing in cryptos right now um you know you buy low and sell high you know obviously in 2007 2017 everyone was jumping into into cryptos in december it, you know it got completely overbought and, and needed a pullback that was healthy for it um but now we you know we've we've seen the price come back and i think if we're not at the bottom we we certainly near the bottom so it's, it's a great time to be buying right now it's early may right now when we're recording yep. this, it's May 2019, and about a almost literally about a year ago, I was I was in South Africa with you, and yep, the price. I remember we were waking up every morning and we were like in tears because the prices were just going to shit. Um, yeah, that's when the, the the bear market was really. That's when people started really saying, okay, the price is is about to go through some sort of bear market. And here we are, a year later. What was your year like? Did you lose faith in crypto? Did you did you get nervous? How did you feel? Yeah, I think all of the above. Um, <laughs> I learned a lot about myself, <laughs> like everyone did. 
I learned a lot about myself. I realized a few things. I realized firstly that um, in 2017, I thought I was a fantastic trader. December 2017, things were going well. Fast forward six, eight, ten weeks and I realized a few things. I realized that I'm I'm really not a great trader. I I don't possess any of the qualities of a trader. I'm too emotional. um, I'm too impatient. And that's when I started looking for an organization where I could I could park my portfolio and have someone professionally manage it for me. And there wasn't anyone out there who I could turn to. And hence, we formed the, the hedge funds, which we have today. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've been in the Bitcoin space and cryptos since sort of 2013, and it's been a great story since then. So what is your fund doing now? You basically started this fund to do something that you needed yourself. Yeah, so so basically, um, I started two funds. Okay, um, we've got the digital asset fund, which is a, a crypto fund. Um, interesting strategy. It's a it's a, a long short strategy. We uh, we're using um, technology. We're using artificial intelligence. Uh, we have an algo which we've bought a a fifty percent stake in a in, in a company that's been around for about fifteen years. Interesting story. Um, quite a character who's developed the software and built a great little business. Um, was involved in MI6 for a number of years and then used that software back in the day for sort of human trafficking and... Um, well, what are, you, um, what are you talking about? The artificial intelligence company that we, we bought a stake in. Okay. Yeah. So I decided we wanted to use artificial intelligence as a means of taking the emotion out of our trading. So we put together this fund where basically we would... We've registered in the Caymans. It's an offshore offshore fund, um, as you know, 85% of other funds globally are nowadays. Um, and the whole idea is we use various strategies powered by artificial intelligence, which manage our risk and really the, the key driver of performance in, in volatile markets. And essentially what we're doing is we're managing volatility. We're trading volatility for our clients, but in a regulated environment. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's been exciting. We've got the two funds. We've got the Digital Assets Fund. And the other fund is our FX fund, which uh, again, you know, employs the same strategy. We're using the algo to trade volatility in the FX markets, which are very liquid, and uh, give a return for our clients. So it's you know it's, it's still early days. Um, we've spent sort of just over a year building the business and, and trying to get the foundation in place, which uh, it all takes time. Um, and you know, I suppose building a, a fund during a a bear market is never easy, never fun, but um, it's you know we'd be picking ourselves right now if we uh, if we were in a in a massive bull run and uh, we didn't have all our all our bits and pieces lined up. So yeah, it's been interesting. It's been um, it's been a long journey, um, and we started to build a, a solid team of finance and technology people. Which you know, guys, you had a sound understanding of of the technology and the markets. Um, and uh, we've decided to, for Exodus Capital, to you know build this you know Cayman domicile fund. Um, authorities there were able to structure uh, our fund offering both affordably and efficiently. Um, our main business is based in the UK in London, um, and we have our independent fund administrators there, which is our, our place of effective management. Um, and yeah, uh, blockchain and global IP. Um, we wanted our our, our strategy. Uh, to across Europe, uh, focusing on sort of small family offices, um, high net worth individuals, um, fund of funds. So that's really where we're at. Um, it's an exciting space. And uh, yeah, I think it's the future's looking really good ahead. So tell me about nation-backed cryptos. We hear that term a lot. Um, 
Well, that scares that scares that, that scares me. I think what's going to happen if we if we look at if we look at what I think could trigger a collapse first and foremost, and how this blends itself into national cryptos. We take let's take for example the largest bank in Europe, being Deutsche Bank. They've got about a you know a sixty-five trillion dollar derivatives exposure, and then you've got you've got Commerce Bank, which you know has, has got about a fifty-five odd trillion dollar derivatives exposure. My concern there is they've recently tried to bundle these two toxic banks together in Germany. Um, you know, so you've got two banks with a combined 120 odd trillion derivatives exposure. And to put that into context, the GDP of Germany is around four trillion a year, and that's never going to end well, Charlie. Um, you know, when they fall, the domino effect from counterparty risks with all the other retail banks globally is going to be horrific. Um, you know, and I think that's where you might see all of the retail banks going down together. They won't just roll over and 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 accept that they've messed up the financial system. They'll they'll clearly blame it on some black swan event. Um, but I think that's what's going to happen, and and we are staring at a massive global crash ahead. Um, people are obviously going to lose confidence in their currencies, and are in the short term will move to to safe havens like precious metals and crypto. Will that be like an instantaneous thing we just wake up to, or it'll start to happen? Will we see the warning signs and try to reverse it? Well, I think already the warning signs are out there. If you just look what's happening in the emerging markets, if you look what's happening in Venezuela right now, um, there are a lot of signs around us every single day. The fact that interest rates are near zero, um, they can't afford to put up interest rates in the future. That'll that'll trigger it in itself. So I think we are we are very, very close to this happening and, and people still have time to get their, their house in order, but you know they need to be wide awake. So I think what you're going to find is I don't believe central banking is ever going to go away. And that's the means by which governments control their population through the monetary system. Um, we saw Jamie Dimon a year ago poo-pooing cryptos. And uh, you know, obviously recently <laughs> recently with them announcing that they're bringing out a stable coin, which is, which is hilarious. But to answer your question, you know, national coins, a lot of people will fall for them. But the, what they don't realize is that they're going to be centralized coins controlled by a central body, whereas the likes of Bitcoin are completely decentralized through miners globally who, who can't be shut down. You can't shut down every miner globally. And, and really, that is the key strength of, of what Bitcoin stands for. Basically, from what I understand, nation-backed cryptos are literally the same thing as money in an online banking account today. It, it would be the exact same thing. Absolutely. Same, much of the same, exactly. And that's why there's no future for it. Okay. They will just simply rehypothecate and they will print more and more and more. And it'll be the same as what's happened in Zimbabwe. It'll be the same that's happened in every country with their fiat currencies. But I feel like it's going to be used as, so, a, I mean, it's, as a ploy because as the popularity of crypto grows, the populations of the world are going to say, yeah. you know, we want to do this and we want to be involved in this and hedge, hedge on this. Um, and, you know, when you remove the, the power of money, when you remove the ability for the governments to control the money supply, that's a huge, that's as if not more important than controlling information, governments are going to feel under pressure and they're going to launch their own cryptos to say, here, here, here's the crypto, here's the dollar back crypto, here it is. And most people will be satisfied. How do we prevent against that? 
Well, I mean, it's ignorance. If you look at most people today, they think that uh, our, our currency, our fiat currency is backed by gold. They've got no idea that it's backed by nothing. It's backed by confidence in the, in, the, in the Reserve Bank, which is a private cartel. So most people today are ignorant of the fact that our, our fiat system is doomed to failure. And that's the concerning thing. You know, we need to educate people and we need to get the message out there that the current system is seriously flawed. You know, we've, I've lived through this firsthand growing up in Zimbabwe. We've had 20 years in the payment solutions game where I could see firsthand. And it opened my eyes to my why. So my why for, for being in Bitcoin is the fact that it's, you know, it's, it's, it's limited. There's so many factors I'm in Bitcoin. But the main thing is the current banking system being so severely flawed. Um, we don't have control of our own wealth. I, I don't like the fact that I have to ask my bank man manager and justify my withdrawals and have my card either denied or accepted. It's, it's, it's too much risk. I don't like the fact that we are all forced into the banking system and that there's a war on cash. I mean, you just look at India a few years ago. They, they took away the two highest denomination of currency and straight away, 85% of the, uh, you know, the, the currency in circulation fell by the wayside. I don't want to be controlled by that. Um, you know, these central banks, they're private cartels. They look at their own agendas. You know, um, what happens is, you know, countries like Iran, Iraq, they're all opening up central banks right now. And it's the same people who are involved in the Fed who are controlling these cartels. You know, just have to look at 2008. I don't think any bankers went to jail. I mean, since then, I mean, many banks have done massive criminal injustices. They've manipulated LIBOR rates. Uh, they've manipulated interest rates. Um, you know, they're working with governments primarily to control the population. And, you know, so I wanted my own financial freedom. And when I heard about Bitcoin and, and read Satoshi's white paper, I knew it was a no-brainer for me. Um, you know, we'd experienced hyperinflation, the collapse of the currency in Zimbabwe. Uh, we'd experienced being chased off our funds and having to relocate to a more stable country. And I learned about the issues around fractional reserve banking and debt. And, you know, more recently, we've seen the establishment of, of, of the Brinks Bank, which is Russia, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. And that's challenging the World Bank. And, you know, this really means to me that the dollar is on borrowed time. So do you think you think replacing the dollar with something else is a good idea like that? The same type of. Uh... No, not at all. I think we need a completely new financial system. We, we can't have a system right now where it's all backed by debt and there's nothing sound behind it. The world needs, we need to have some sort of blockchain technology. And I think that's where the underlying technology of blockchain is the exciting thing for me. Not only Bitcoin, I mean, who knows in the future, Bitcoin may not emerge as the winner here. Um, but certainly what I do know is blockchain technology is here for keeps. And it's all about trust. And um, I've, I've had a lot of confidence in the few conferences I've been to lately. Um, even going back two years ago, I was, I was at Consensus in, in New York. And interestingly enough, it was sponsored by the Dubai government in conjunction with Australian government. And when these governments are looking seriously at blockchain, I, I really get a, a strong feeling that the, the underlying technology is here long term. So, yeah, I mean, uh, the fact that, you know, I can control my own wealth and my own wallet with no counterparty is really a, a very powerful thing. And, and one of the main reasons that I'm involved in cryptocurrencies today. So it's been a no brainer and a, as an alternative asset class. Um, it's 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 been great and and you know a few years ago I was involved in mining which which again was was very exciting, Bitcoin mining. It's it's interesting that you live in the country that exports the most gold in the world and um, do they still does South Africa still export the most gold in the world? 
No, I think I think we're exporting a lot. I don't know if we're still number one. Um, obviously the Chinese are the the greatest producers of gold in the world, but they're also the greatest importers. And if we just look across Africa, um, most of the mines nowadays across Africa are, are being bought up by the Chinese, so they can see what's coming. Um, they're investing very heavily in gold, um, and yeah, as are many other countries asking for uh, repatriation of their own gold. I mean, Germany have done that. Um, you know, other countries more recently have done the same. So it, it just paints a picture of, of where and this so, whole thing's going to go. And so you you decided to get into Bitcoin mining. Most people just start holding. Um, why did you get into Bitcoin mining? Well, luckily it was in 2014. It was, In fact, it was after, after the Mt. Gox hack. Um, I got exposed to Bitcoin mining. Uh, my initial experience was in a, a sort of a cloud mining setup, which... I could see after a while that um, I needed to control my own destiny. So um, I was fortunate enough in 2015 through some relationships that I had, I was I was introduced to um, a mine that was for sale in, in Washington State. Um, and you know, in the early days back then, and mining it was it was lucrative. Um, but obviously, as time's gone past, it's uh, it's got more difficult. Um, the number of miners has increased. And as you know, there's a fixed supply of Bitcoin rewards every 10 minutes. So, you know, basically miners are getting rewarded with Bitcoins um, for, you know, every 10 minutes. Back then it was it was um, 25 Bitcoins every 10 minutes. Then we had the halving in, in July 2016, down to 12 and a half Bitcoins every, every 10 minutes or so. And um, again, next year, we're going to witness another halving. So at that time, it was, it was lucrative. But there's another challenge, which is called difficulty. And... Um, the easiest way to talk about this, I suppose, is imagine um, as more and more machines are competing for a fixed Bitcoin rewards, the horsepower, the processing power that you need to achieve the results increases exponentially. So, you know, as Bitcoin became very popular in 2017, a lot of people were taking profits and buying mining equipment and, and competing for Bitcoin rewards. Um, so, you know, we had a good run. Um, today, my miners have been moved out of Washington State. I've actually moved them back to another location um, in South Africa. Um, not that lucrative at the moment, but uh, we had a good run. And uh, yeah, it was it was an interesting time in my life. You're, and uh, you're not mining for for profits for today. If you feel that Bitcoin is, you know, the future and going to grow in, in value and price, then it doesn't really matter. Is you know, if you're if you're using your your machinery, you're just charging electricity. And you're getting more Bitcoin. That's the best situation. Well, that's the name of the game. Long term, it's it's really about trying to accumulate as many Bitcoin as you possibly can, and that's my strategy. Um, so the rewards have slowed down a lot. Um, power is not as cheap as it used to be, so it's 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 not as viable. But to answer that question, fast forward the predictions many people have had five years down the road, and I don't even want to go there with a prediction of my own. But you know, then it'll be worthwhile. Just hang on what to this Bitcoin. Now? You got me excited. Oh, you've put me on a spot, Charlie. <laughs> I want to ask you your, that question for yourself. What do you well, think? I would just say that it's higher than it is today. Absolutely. Um, sure. um, I, I, look at, I look at it like this. You know, um, I've been through so many of these bubbles and bursts. And what I can say is that usually, or at least in the past, the um, it's, it's exponential growth. Right. So uh, yeah. if you look at it on a linear scale, you go for so all I started some of the really early ones, the price goes from ten cents to a dollar and then it goes back down to, to twenty cents. And then it goes back up to a dollar. Um and then yep. over and it goes back up to ten dollars, and then it dumps again back to two. 
And then, you know, I'm missing one or two here and there, but then it goes from two to 36. And that bubble, I actually remember very clearly because as the price was going from two to 36, I had just not felt I hadn't had enough in the first, the the one right before that. So I went all in at $32. I bought a ton of Bitcoin and then, and then the price dumped back down to like $2. So I was wrecked, you know? Um, And then the price went from and I sold a lot and the price went back up to like $200. Um, and then we all know what happened after that I went down to a hundred and then went back up to 1200 and then, and then went to 20,000 eventually. So if you just look at it from a scale of that, then you're looking at easily over a hundred thousand dollars, $200,000 per Bitcoin easily. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's, that's a minimum, I believe. For sure. Um, I mean, just look at Ethereum. I mean, Ethereum in 2016 was, you know, it was about a dollar, give or take, in the early day, in the beginning of, you know, 20, 2016. It went up to 10 bucks. Um, you know, Bitcoin was in the region of 1,000 in January 2017. In the space of 12 months since then, Ethereum went up 120 times and Bitcoin went up 20 times. So lots can happen. So it can be, it can be very exciting. It all depends when you get in. I, I just know one thing. You need to buy low and sell high. Yeah, it usually works. <laughs> you start to time it really right. You got to time it right. Absolutely. But don't you get emotional with crypto too? I get so emotional with it. I'm far too emotional. That's why I've decided I'll leave it to the experts in the fund and they manage it for me primarily. So we use technology and uh, the fund is open to people outside accredited investors out of the US. There are certain uh, criteria. Um, so yeah, uh, the fund's open to investors, accredited uh, professional investors. There is a minimum investment amount. Uh, which is a hundred thousand dollars, and that's that's sort of governed by the uh, the Caymans. It's not something that we have control over, but um, I suppose that's there for a reason to protect people. They don't want to have happening what happened in the in the ICO craze of 2017, 2018 happening in the future. So I don't. I want to ask you about that because you know what you just said, um, offhandedly said without you know without even thinking, kind of totally symbolizes where we're going uh, and from the world. So what you just said was accredited investors outside of the US. So the accredited part is very important, obviously. Um, you don't want people betting yeah. their house on these things, you know. Um, and that's a c- consumer protection rule, and I, and I like that rule. Um, but the outside of the US thing, what that basically that means is I can't participate in your fund. And that's hard because it used to be where if you wanted to do business in the United States, you had to pay to play. But now, like you know, yeah. in your words, the the cabals of the of the United States, these central banks and everything, um, they don't allow it. And so, what most countries, because we're living in a more globalized world, other governments like the Cayman Islands are just saying, you know what, we just don't want to deal with it anymore. And there's enough business outside of the U.S., so we're just going to basically say, no United States customers. And in the crypto space, you see that all the time. You see that where. It used to be that if you're a U.S. citizen, you can work with and do business with any country in the world. Now it's like almost the opposite, where you go to a website, you have to check. It'll say, oh, United States citizen, you can't do business with us. For sure. I mean, I think that's why you see a lot of people who are interested in the cryptos. They're moving to Puerto Rico, to Malta, Belize. Um, They're moving out of the U.S., Um, you know, they want to become citizens of the world. They don't want to be controlled by these governments to the extent that they are anymore. Um, the world's a smaller place, so yeah, absolutely. It can't be easy being an American right now. I, I feel for you. I've been through it. You know, we've lived through all of the the, the, the 
price controls, currency controls, and the, the controls that our governments put on us. Will that so not easy at all? Will that change? Will will we eventually get to a point where we're in a in a globalized enough world where people can go to like jurisdiction shopping and eventually um, do business with each other? Are we going to see? Are we going to see a more globalized world in ten years from now, or are we going to see a less globalized world? I'm very concerned about this globalization. It's a it's a massive concern for me. Why um, is it a concern? Is I think it a good thing. Well, I think countries need to control their own destiny again. You know, having I mean, if you look at the EU, the European Union's an absolute mess. And and just talk about Brexit for a minute. The fact that Britain want their own sovereignty back to row their own boat, I think, is a good thing. Um, you know, for hundreds of years they fought wars, and you know, the whole of the EU is in an absolute state. Um, I don't know if you need to be part of a sinking ship. Um, Why not try to, to to patch the whole of the ship instead of jumping off of it? Ah, well, I don't think that's that's. You know, the globalists concern me. The fact that it's just more control. It's more control for you know the EU, the World Bank, the IMF. These are all the same cartels. Then it never ends. It's not going to end well. Where you and I are going to be robbed of our freedom and our time and our money and our wealth. And that's what scares. Do you want to go back to the world though with nationalism and independence, where we're all fighting wars with each other over over what? Well, I think there's other ways. There's other ways to handle it. I, I don't think that's that's going to solve anything. But certainly, having one European Union and one or two unions in the world, it's 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 an absolute mess that hasn't worked, and I don't think it is going to work. So, you so. would would you say that you believe in in economic cooperation and not like political cooperation, or is it the opposite? No, economic, definitely, 100%. And I think the fact that, you know, whether you for Trump or against Trump, the reality is in the world today, we've got two leaders in Trump and Putin who are both nationalists. And the fact that they want to make their respective countries strong again is a good thing. Um, they need to get their local um, industry booming again. You can't outsource it all to China and then be at the, at, at the mercy of, of, of the East. That's, that's not going to end well either. Um, there is going to be a war on their currency, and, and it's unraveling as we speak. What has to happen is the U.S. has to gain strength. They've got to get on top of their debt. They've got to balance a budget, and that hasn't happened in 30 years. And they need to go back to sound money, which they've clearly lost sight of. There's too much debt. Simon, Simon, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, you've definitely opened people's eyes to where we are in the world today, but I want to I want to ask you one last question. Leave it with this: What can people do today to preserve their 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 wealth or or their money that they're earning? Um, what would you you know people who don't want to take too much risk in anything? Um, what would you suggest they can do today as they're listening to the show? Well, my advice to anyone today is just make a start. Get some money or some wealth out of the system that you can control yourself. I'm not saying put all of your eggs in one basket, but buy some Bitcoin and a bit of precious metals. And, and you can even do a combination where you can buy some, for example, some silver. You can leverage that and buy some Bitcoin. But the reality is you need to start. Like so, Charlie, thanks for having me on your show. It's been great catching up and um, look forward to chatting again. Yeah, I can't wait to have you again on the show. Thank you so much, Simon. And hopefully I get to see you soon. Go well. Thanks so much. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Untold Stories go live every Tuesday at 7 a.m. EST. Links to our Apple and Spotify channels are in the show notes. You can also follow me on Twitter, Charlie Shrem, to continue the conversation. See you next week.